Our text for today is from our gospel reading. We heard a few moments ago from Luke chapter 24. I'm not going to be showing any of the verses up on the screen this morning, so I do strongly encourage you open up God's Word. If there's a Bible near you, you can use one of those. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, feel free to use that. And in our church Bibles, Luke chapter 24 is found on page 885. Page 885. And as we open up God's Word this morning, let's go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, here this morning as we hear the sound of Bibles being opened, we are reminded that you have not remained silent, but that you have spoken. You've spoken your truth and your grace. And so we pray that you would take the truth and grace of your holy and inspired word and inscribe it upon our hearts here today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke is obviously the author of the Gospel of Luke. You probably know, you might know, that Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, which tells of the earliest days and moments of the church. And in the very first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke describes to us what we oftentimes refer to as the post-resurrection ministry of Christ. That is the ministry of Christ which took place after he had suffered, died, and had risen from the grave, his post-resurrection ministry. And it says in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus appeared to his disciples and to all of his followers for a period of 40 days, giving them, and I quote, many convincing proofs that he was alive. For a period of 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive. We have recorded in the New Testament 11 different encounters that people had, the disciples had with Jesus after his resurrection, leading up to the time of his ascension, 11 different post-resurrection encounters with Christ. And here in this little series that we're in, in this season of Easter, we're focusing in on just three of those post-resurrection encounters. Last week, if you were here, we heard the story of Christ's encounter with so-called doubting Thomas and how he dealt with his doubts and his uncertainties. Next week, if you come, we're going to be talking about Jesus and his encounter with Peter. You might remember Peter had denied even knowing Jesus three times and how Jesus deals with Peter's doubts of his love and forgiveness. And today our focus here in Luke chapter 24 is Jesus' encounter with these two disciples. These weren't part of the 12, but part of the larger group of his followers. Jesus' encounter with these two followers, his two disciples, on a road to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And make no mistake... That what Jesus is doing here in this text and in this encounter is very strange. It's very odd, strange behavior on the part of Jesus. But in this 
odd, strange behavior, Jesus is trying to show them, and indeed he's trying to show us something vitally important for dealing with our doubts today. It's strange and odd behavior on the part of Jesus, but in this odd, strange behavior, he's trying to show us something all important, something vital that we need with dealing with our doubts and our uncertainties today. So let's dig in to God's word together into the text, Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. It says, that very day, that very day, that is speaking about Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that the tomb, uh, the stone had been rolled back and the women saw that it was empty. It's that very day that two of them, two of his followers were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. If you were to walk those seven miles, that would take you something around three, three and a half hours to walk. It says they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They were talking about how Jesus had been arrested, about how Jesus had been crucified, about how Jesus had died, and about how the stone had been rolled back and the women were saying that an angel said that he was risen. That's what they're talking about. And it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So again, you have two of these followers of Jesus. They're on their way. It's the day of Easter. It is the day when the women came and said that the tomb was empty and the angel said that he was risen. And they're walking to Emmaus, three, three and a half hours walk. They're talking about all these things that have happened. Jesus comes up alongside of them, starts to walk with them. And he says, hey, what is this thing that you're talking about? What are you talking about? As you walk along the road, and all of a sudden when he says it, that says they stood still, they stopped walking. And they were looking Sad. Now, the Greek here for sad is a much stronger word than I think is conveyed here in our English text. This is a gloom. This is a sullenness. This is the type of sadness, almost despair, a type of overwhelming grief that happens to us when all of our hopes are gone. And with all of our dreams have been taken away from us, our dreams have been dashed, that's the kind of sadness that they are experiencing. That's the kind of gloom, depression that is overwhelming them in this moment. These men have lost their hope. It is a hopelessness that they have. Now, Jesus, further on in the text, in verse 25, kind of analyzes this doubt and uncertainty and the sorrow and the grief that they're experiencing. He says, foolish ones. Doesn't sound really sensitive. He calls them foolish. Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is saying you are full of sorrow and hopelessness because of your doubts, because you do not believe, and you do not believe because you are foolish. And this foolishness is that they simply did not have the eyes to perceive or to see the deeper and more amazing and more beautiful thing that God was doing. 
He walks up alongside of them and he says, hey, what is it you're talking about? And I love verse 18. It says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Are you the only one? I love it. Just as an aside, remember, this is the Jewish celebration that has been taking place uh, during the time of his arrest and his suffering, death, and resurrection is the celebration of what? The Passover. And historians look back, we try to estimate that maybe somewhere up to a million or even more people would be in and around the city of Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. Are you the only one of the over the million people who are there who don't know of these things? Because remember, these things weren't done in secret or done in a corner. When Jesus dies on the cross, it says the sun stopped shining. There was darkness over all the land. You think they noticed? It says when Jesus died in that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Do you think they noticed? That at the moment that Jesus died, there were earthquakes that happened in and around the city of Jerusalem. Do you think they noticed all of these amazing supernatural things that were taking place? Are you the only one? Who doesn't know of the things that happened? The things that surround the death and resurrection of Jesus were known. They didn't happen in secret by so many people. And let me just say this, again, going back to what we talked about at Easter, you know, the last people who would somehow create or believe in the idea of a man, an individual man who dies and comes back to life again, was first century Jewish men and women. Let alone that that man was the son of God, was God in human flesh. That was blasphemy to them. The last people who had come up with this idea that Jesus was the son of God who had died and who had risen again was first century Jewish men and women. But here's the point. It wasn't just a few of them who believed this. It was thousands and thousands and thousands of them who from the earliest moments of the church believed. And no one in 2,000 years has been able to explain how in the world that happened that thousands and thousands of Jewish men and women of the first century believed that Jesus from Nazareth was the son of God who had died and who had risen again something extraordinary happened that caused thousands to believe are you the only one who does not know the things that have taken place they say they ask and then Jesus says in verse 19 he plays dumb what things Do you believe Jesus had a sense of humor? I do. What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped. See, there's the word hope. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, in what they are recounting here, we see the clue to their hopelessness and to their sorrow. We see their doubts and why it's there. First of all, what do they believe about Jesus? It says, they describe Jesus of Nazareth as a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God. Was Jesus a man? Yes. Was he a prophet? Yes. Mighty in deed and word, before God. Well, it wasn't just before God. He was God. 
He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was God in human flesh. See, they didn't understand still who Jesus was, and they didn't understand what Jesus had done. It says that they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And this idea of to redeem Israel was language which conveyed not a spiritual redemption or salvation the way that we normally think about it. They hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel means they hoped that he was the one who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. They hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to reinstate the borders of the kingdom of Israel like it was in the good old days under King David. That's the kind of salvation they were looking for and expecting in the Messiah. They hoped that Jesus was the one who was going to reinstate their nationalistic pride as God's people. They hoped that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to give them a little bit more prosperity and a little bit more money and a little bit more peace and a little bit better lives. That's what their hope was in. Now imagine if that's what Jesus was and what he came to do. He's 33 years old when he enters into Jerusalem. Let's say that he overthrew Rome. And let's say that he lives, it would have been an old age for this period of history, but say he lived up into his 80s, that he reigned for 50 years. Imagine that. 50 years of, as I say, nationalistic pride as God's people, 50 years away from the Romans, 50 years of greater prosperity, 50 years of more peace, 50 years of, of a little bit more comfortable life as God's people. 50 whole years. Why are they so full of sorrow? Why are they overwhelmed with this grief? It's because their hopes and their dreams were not big enough. Their hopes and their dreams and what they were wanting and desiring was too small. They couldn't conceive of what God was doing, that God had come to suffer, that God had died for them, that God had conquered death, that God had forgiven them all of their sins. And it wasn't just 50 years that God was after, but it was everlasting life, an everlasting kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth, the full restoration. Don't you see, this is the same with us, with the sorrows of our life and with the struggles of our life, it is because we are not desiring enough. Oftentimes as Christians, I think we think our desires are too strong and to be a Christian means we have to suppress our desires. We are not desiring enough. We're too easily pleased, as C.S. Lewis says, in just the things of this world when infinite joy is being offered to us. We're like a child who would rather go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't even conceive of what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the seashore. We're too easily pleased. Your hopes and our dreams are too small. So how can our hopes and our dreams and our vision and our view become deeper and more beautiful to see what God is really doing? And those doubts to be stilled, 
Well, look what Jesus does here. He comes alongside of them. He walks along with them all the way seven miles, three and a half hours with Jesus. And it says in verse 28 that when they drew near to the village, they were so enthralled with Jesus in his presence. And it says Jesus acted as if he were going further. And so they actually urged him strongly saying, stay with us, stay with us, Jesus. And it says in verse uh, 32, as Jesus has now left them and they're reflecting on this experience, these two disciples, they turn to each other and they say this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Did not our hearts burn within us all of our longings, all of our deepest hopes and dreams, dreams we didn't even know that we had was being fulfilled. Our hearts were burning within us. And you say, yes, Pastor Scott, I know. And if I could see Jesus for three and a half hours face to face, that might settle some of my questions and some of my doubts and my heart might burn within my chest as well. They had it easy back then. But remember what Miss Karin shared with us in our kids' message. Remember verse 16. This odd and strange behavior. It says, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Remember. They didn't even know that it was Jesus. The entire time and to the very end of the moment and they finally saw that it was him the entire time isn't this strange Jesus is hiding himself he's going through all of this I mean why didn't he just appear to them what is this all about they don't even know it's Jesus but it says in verse 30, 27 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the entire Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, they didn't even know it was Jesus, but they had a three and a half hour long Bible study. And it says, verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. What is Jesus doing? Why didn't he just reveal himself? Why is he hiding himself from them? It's because he's trying to show to them, and I think maybe even more so, he's trying to show us 2,000 years later that what we need is not simply the physical face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus but what we need is what? The scriptures themselves. His holy and inspired word. What is the thing that was so vital that Jesus is showing them and showing us? What is so vital to speak to the deepest questions and doubts of our life? It is the scriptures. It's the holy and inspired word of God. It's the gospel, the good news. And quite frankly, some of you look a little disappointed in that answer. Pastor, I thought you were going to finally show us something amazing. And I thought it was going to be something cool and something I could really apply to my life. And I think Jesus understood that we can have that attitude about our Bibles and about God's word. Can we not? 
Jesus is on Easter Sunday is going through all of this, hiding himself from them for three and a half hours and doing all of this to show them and to show you how utterly important and how powerful is the word of God, the good news, the gospel that God died for you, God suffered for you, God rose for you because he wants you with him. As a pastor, this has happened many times. I've had people come to me in a crisis. There's a divorce, there's a diagnosis, there's a death, there's a lost job, it's a crisis. Pastor, I need a Bible verse. Pastor, can you show me a couple of Bible verses? I need some help. I need a Bible verse. I'm like, I'm happy to meet with you. We can talk about that, and we can sit down, and yes, God can use that, and, and, and I'll give you a Bible verse, but I think oftentimes that's like 21st century American who goes to the doctor and says, doctor, I need a pill. Doctor, I need the pill that's gonna take away my pain. I need the pill that's gonna correct my problem. Pastor, I need the Bible verse that's gonna take away the sorrow or the thing I'm struggling with. And look, God can work that way. He can zap you right into your heart. But I don't think it's always as easy or as simple as that. Jesus here is calls us, he calls us to a lifetime of devotion to his word and meditating on his word and reading and studying and praying. You might remember Psalm 19. A very long psalm, but Psalm 19, probably the most famous verse, says, Thy word is a what? Lamp unto my feet. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Why does it emphasize a lamp unto my feet? I think it's probably because I know we want the whole picture. We want everything given at once. But God is saying, I'm going to give you enough from my word to get you through the day. I'm just going to show you enough around your feet. And then the next day, you wake up, you turn to me and my word, and I'm going to give you what you need to get through that day. And the next day, I'm going to give you the word to your feet to get you through that day. And over and over, and it's every single day, Martin Luther said, I need to hear the gospel every single day because every single day, I forget the gospel. We need the gospel every single day because every single day we forget. We forget who we are, who he is. Almost put my Bible down when I'm talking about how important the Bible is. One last thing. This is from John chapter 6. Some of you know this story, some of you don't. There was a time Jesus has, and it's hard for us to even conceive, just thousands and thousands of people around him pushing in and pushing in, and he's healing, he's doing miracles, they're healing diseases, he's feeding the 5,000, people are getting all of their needs met, it's amazing. Jesus has this amazing ministry, thousands and thousands of people, and then Jesus starts to speak to them and teach them some things that are difficult, and it says in John chapter 6 that many of them started to turn away and they left him. 
They left him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, well, what about you? He says, do you want to leave me too? And the apostle Peter turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we turn? Where else can we go? I mean, we can leave him, but you accept that is darkness, that is nihilism, that is nothingness, that is despair forever. That's a choice. Lord, where can we go? Where else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. As I said at Easter, there's so much bad news in the world today, but we have good news, and his name is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for you. To him alone be all the glory. Amen.